0: welcome to another episode of the Bear Market Brief podcast. I'm your host Aaron, and this time we have a special double feature for you. With twin crises in Eurasia these days, both in Kyrgyzstan and Nagorno-Karabakh, we figured it was time to go big or go home. So over the course of the next hour or so, we'll be joined by two regional specialists who will share their thoughts on what's going on. So let's dive in, shall we? Up first is Kyrgyzstan, and joining us to shed some light on the situation is Colleen Wood. She'll introduce herself in a bit, but suffice to say, we had a great conversation, very enlightening for me, not only about what's going on, but about some of the key players in Kyrgyz politics right now. Now, one of the things we discussed is just how fast events are developing there. We talked about what Presidents Jay and Bekov might do in response to the goings-on. Since we recorded the podcast, he's actually stepped down from his post. So if you hear us talk about him and what he might do, know that he's already stepped down. Anyway, let's get started. Colleen, it's so great to have you on the podcast.
1: Hi, yeah, thanks for having me, I'm excited.
0: So, uh, first things first, could you introduce yourself, tell the audience a little bit about your background?
1: My name is Colleen Wood. I'm a PhD candidate at Columbia University in the political science department. I research broadly, citizenship and social movements in Central Asia, with a focus on Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Before I came to Colombia, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Kyrgyzstan, lived in three of the seven oblasts, so have spent time um, in all corners of the country. And yeah, now I'm working on this research, and I also write regularly for The Diplomat on Central Asian politics and society.
0: I will remember and take away from this is that Kyrgyzstan, in fact, has seven oblasts. I did not know that. But speaking of Kyrgyzstan, this is the reason we are talking today on this double crisis feature, uh, Is Kyrgyzstan has had a rather turbulent several weeks politically. As best I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, there were parliamentary elections widely accused of being beset by voter fraud, which led to protests and interim governments being appointed that may or may not hold sway. So help set me straight. And then for the, the listeners as well, what the heck's going on?
1: I don't know. I mean, you just painted the picture. That's basically <laughs> what the last week and a half has has looked like. So podcast done, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. So you're right that this kind of the critical moment that set off last, this current political unrest was parliamentary elections, which were held on October 4th. And Yeah, during the day there, and even in the weeks leading up to the elections, there had been rumors of certain parties busing people in and having them use a special form to register in multiple voting precincts. The day of the election, there were videos and photos going around of uh, people being bussed in and standing in line uh, to receive payments in exchange for showing a photograph of their ballot. So uh, reports all over the country of this sort of nefarious tactics in order to win votes, win support um, across the country. So on Monday, the day after the elections, people were responding both to this, the reports of voter fraud and vote buying. But the the big crowds also came out because of the results of the elections. So Kyrgyzstan as a parliamentary system, they have a threshold for securing seats. So in order to actually get into parliament your party has to both hit a 0.7% of the vote share in each one of the seven regions, but it also has to... Cross to clear a seven percent barrier um, at the nationwide level. So, of the 16 parties that were participating in these these elections, only four of the parties actually got more than seven percent of the vote and secured seats, leaving out then yeah the other the other 12 parties then have no representation. Um, And so, when you look at the vote share. That meant that the the four parties that actually were going to be representing the country only got like 65 percent of the vote share. So that leaves out a lot of people's voices and um, perspectives. So there's that on an accountability angle. But also the four parties that did make it in were all pro-government, pro-establishment. And it looked like it was going to be five more years of business as usual. So that was what the initial crowds were responding to was the vote buying and just the prospects of another round of parliament that had already been in power.
0: So I guess to dive in on kind of the history here, just a a particular question, I don't want to strike the wrong note and say that these political machinations are, you know, unusual in the former Soviet space. They happens with, you know, some degree of frequency rather in a lot of countries so was this just over the political results of the election or was there kind of kindling here that may have increased tensions? Was COVID hitting Kyrgyzstan particularly hard? Was there any other kind of tensions that this could have you know, served as the straw that broke the camel's back?
1: Yeah, I think that the COVID response was definitely on people's minds, that polling done in August showed that more than half of the country thinks that political leadership is not handling COVID well. I think it's really hit Kyrgyzstan's economy in a really intense way, so that's definitely on people's minds, but also last November... there was released an investigative report on corruption and a smuggling scandal in in the customs service. And I think that this was a flashpoint for the opposition to really have both a, a name and a dollar amount of who's organizing massive corruption and how much money are they swindling out of public coffers and sending out of the country. So I think that Th- this election being the first after that report was released meant that then the results of the election tied with that report, I think, was kind of what you had said, the the, the kindling for the fire, that the family uh, involved in this smuggling ring, the Matrayimovs, were basically bankrolling the party that came in second. And so I think seeing this name Matrayimov, um, Iskander Matrayimov, his party, Mekhanim Kyrgyzstan, was widely seen as bankrolled by... Dark money, basically. And so I think that now having that name and associating that name with corruption and running the country, people were especially upset.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Seems, I mean, I don't want to be too much of a comparativist, but almost seems a little bit vaguely parallel to Belarus, kind of an establishment that is viewed as increasingly unpopular, just not acknowledging demands for change or kind of allowing even a symbolic amount of opposition influence just really setting the situation off. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I kind of see a little parallel there. As far as kind of what's happened since though, so we have, I know there's kind of a interim government, as I mentioned, appointed. There's been unrest in Bishkek as as far as I have been following. So I know this is evolving basically every day. So What what is going on now? There's been talk of lustration of former official former officials, rather. So what is the latest on the situation? So the protests broke out. They were massive. They broke into government buildings, parliament. And then what?
1: Just a quick um, tie back to Belarus. I think I'm. Hesitant to make any parallels to Belarus, actually. Um, I think maybe Armenia in 2019, um, Georgia in the last five years are maybe better parallels. But I think Belarus with Lukashenko holding power for so many years the like, really horrific violence that he has used to hold up his regime is just on an entirely different level than Kyrgyzstan. Um, Jay Mbekov has been, for the three years that he's been president, has really not been seen as someone trying to take power. There definitely have been targeted attacks on um, journalists, on political opposition, involving court cases, like on libel charges, but it definitely doesn't come anywhere near gruesomeness of uh, the regime in Belarus that I think, yeah, it's just like a completely different picture. But yeah, the unrest is still there and um, kind of confusion um, about what the next few weeks, let alone the next parliamentary session hold is is definitely unsettling. But so yeah, to then move to your other question about like, what exactly is going on? Yeah, it it is hard to keep up on that. It seems like every single day, there's a totally new um, picture about what's happening. So as of today, where are we? Um, So today is October 14th. So the process went that on the day after the elections, people storm the White House, they are occupying this building, you then have this political vacuum in which people start stepping up and appointing themselves into positions of power. So you have someone who calls themselves the Commandant of Bishkek, so he's going to maintain security in the Capitol. People who are taking over The Security Council, Internal Affairs, trying to just restore order. But then over the next week, there continue to be these massive protests, not only in Bishkek, but in other cities across Kyrgyzstan, largely peaceful. But yeah, in Bishkek at at night, there have been large protests. But I think what's been impressive to watch is the like resilience and determination of average residents of Bishkek who've really taken it upon themselves to protect their city from people who would want to take advantage of it. So we've seen these trujine, the like civilian guard forces, um, who have come out to protect building, government buildings and businesses from looting. But it, it does seem that the unrest is at least in terms of, Protests turning violent. Is that an equilibrium right now in terms of the like who exactly is leading the country? The picture as I see it right now is that there was a struggle among parliamentarians from the last session to achieve quorum to elect a new speaker and a new prime minister. So there were several kind of extra legal attempts to shove through this guy named Sadr Japarov, who until a week ago was in prison serving out a sentence for hostage taking and an attempted coup. But so he got out of prison and overnight became like the main candidate for prime minister. They were trying to push him through without first electing a speaker, which if President Jay Mbekov then resigned would mean that Japarov as prime minister would assume the acting presidency. So I think Jay Mbekov saw that, the writing on the wall, and was like, all right, we gotta somehow get out on top here. So Jay Mbekov refused to accept the decree from parliament with this new government that would have formed under Driparov, sent them back to square one. Parliament met with quorum, played by the rules, and voted for a man named Kanat Isayev to be the speaker of parliament. And then just today, Japadov was confirmed as prime minister and has submitted a new government. But has also slyly said that he's now like waiting for President Jay Bekov to submit his resignation. So I think there still is a bit of a power struggle playing out between um, Japadov and Jay Bekov that I guess within the next day or so we will have a bit more clarity. But there's been a lot of back and forth between doing things through legal procedure. But also it does seem like Jay Bekov is kind of crossing his T's, dotting his I's to make sure that he is in a position where he's not going to end up in jail or need to leave the country in the next week.
0: Just to clarify, pardon my ignorance here, in Kyrgyzstan, in the political system, is it a strong presidency or is the prime minister kind of running the show?
1: This is like the central tension of Kyrgyzstan's electoral system. So it's a a semi-presidential system, which means that that both the president and the prime minister do hold power, but like all of the rules are written to limit presidential power. I think both out of domestic considerations that Kyrgyzstan's first two presidents got a little bit too power hungry. And so then when a new constitution was written in 2010, it was written with that in mind of like, we do not want someone to stay more than one term. We do not want someone to have too much power vis-a-vis parliament. So the whole like parliament and all the rules about electing a parliament are written with creating a strong counter, a strong balance of presidential power in mind. But with that said, The prime minister really does not hold a lot of sway and they tend to be the fall guy for big scandals. So like most of the people who served as prime minister in the last five years have like ended up in prison or in exile. There have been more than at this point now, including the last people who like served for prime minister for a few hours at a time or a few days at a time in the last two weeks, more than 10 people have served as prime minister in the last decade. So it's not a position that people stay in for a long time.
0: Interesting. Fun political fact. kind of reminds me of the uh, position of defense minister in Germany it is known as the ejector seat, just because it tends to end political careers and just not go well for anyone who holds that role. So prime minister as the ejector seat in Kyrgyz politics. So a question, another follow up. Um, uh, so we have Japarov now as the, you know, PM, we think. And the question is, he was, though, pushed into power by the prior parliament. So is that satisfying the demands of this kind of newly coalescing or not coalesce, but this, you know, demand by the opposition for change? I know he was in jail, so he clearly was not part of the political establishment. But is this actually solving the problem or just establishing stability for now?
1: Yeah. And this is where the, the illustration question comes into play. So illustration is a Latin word that means like to ceremonially purify um, and it has been invoked more often in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine after 2014, as banning people who were involved and implicated in the previous regime, like, these people should not be allowed to continue to work in government. And so I think in Kyrgyzstan, where a lot of the big political names basically play musical chairs across parties, across positions in government, there's a deep frustration with, like, seeing people who used to be in pro-government parties suddenly showing up and claiming that they're opposition. Um, I think that there's, like, a mistrust that they are actually opposition. So, yeah, how does Japata fit into this? Yeah. So you had referred to it as the interim government. I think what's important is that it's not technically an interim government. Like he is prime minister right now, but because the central election committee annulled the results of the election. Now the question is like, are we going to undo that annulment or hold new elections? Because if there's then new elections held in the next month or so, then Japarv is done as prime minister and, or he somehow gets elected and stays on as prime minister in in the seventh parliamentary session. But it's interim only insofar as once there's new elections, then there's a new parliament that will choose their own PM. But like some of the youth groups that were really, really vocal in demanding lustration are now kind of changing their tenor and are just demanding, we want an apolitical prime minister and an apolitical speaker who do not have intentions to stay on and who do not have intentions to be president of our country, basically. So I think that they are now trying to take advantage of Chepotav and Isayev, who also has a criminal record and who also has open investigations against him. Like Both of these men are technically criminals in Kyrgyzstan, and the extent to which that's politically motivated versus grounded in reality, I think that there's a little bit of both going on. But yeah, I think young people recognize that lustration is not going to cut, like the people who are in power are not going to just say, you're right, lustration is a great idea, I'll step down. I'm going to leave my position that has been lucrative for me, I'm going to leave my position that gives me and my family access to state capture to, to money. Now you should run the country. So I think that the, the young people and the activists who are demanding lustration are now trying to figure out what other levers can they use to hold these people accountable and make them play by the rules. And if they play by the rules, then they'll need to leave in a month when new elections happen. So I think that, that's, that they're starting to, to figure out more clever ways to, to get lustration beyond asking people to step down.
0: So first thing we underlined, seven oblasts in Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> Second thing we this situation is rapidly evolving. So I think it'd be helpful, another situation helpful for me, helpful to listeners too, uh, to talk about thinking about Kyrgyzstan's politics as kind of a solar system, the centers of gravity, kind of big planets, suns, moons which, around which these kind of forces orbit. Um, it's kind of a helpful way that I try to like understand you know, different countries and political systems. And last I was really clued into Kyrgyzstan was, I think, already two years ago, just to show you kind of evolution from crisis to crisis, where the former president Atambayev was holed up in his compound, and then the security forces tried to arrest him, and then they got surrounded by supporters of Atambayev. So I guess starting with Atambayev, because I mentioned him by name, Who are the key players in Kyrgyz politics? What names are important to know?
1: So Atom who in August 2019 was arrested, the story with the bunk, but so he was in prison until last Monday night when his supporters broke him out of jail, tried to pull him on the streets. And for a day, it seems like he just kind of wanted to be out of prison, just didn't want to be um, in detention. And then there was a day when yeah, this is the 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 planets are moving so it's not a super stable solar system. But so Atambayev shows up at a rally with Omerbek Babanov who uh, ran for president against Jay Mbekov. and Babanov left the country because of threats of being arrested but came back basically the same day that Atambayev was arrested announcing I'm I'm returning to Kyrgyzstan I'm not going to return to politics but I'm coming back to the homeland and so he and Atambayev teamed up along with Former Prime Minister Sapatov, who was also in prison, and the three of them, who a year before would not have ever been bedfellows, rallied behind Babanov as an alternate Prime Minister candidate to Japatov, but that rally turned violent and suddenly that was no longer feasible. Atambayev was put back in prison, and then that night, his first night back in prison, he somehow gets out a message that he supports Japarov and wants Jay and Bekov to step down. So it really doesn't make a ton of sense. I don't know what he's angling for, other than maybe trying to get back at Jay and Bekov, who that they used to be close and had a split, which ended obviously Atambayev in prison. But yes, I don't know what he's angling for, but so there was an attempt on his part, I think, to get back into politics. Bobanov is a name that is worth paying attention to, trying to figure out how involved he wants to be in Kyrgyzstan's politics. In in the um, International Republican Institute poll done in August, Babanov is the most trusted politician in Kyrgyzstan. That when people were asked, who do you trust? And it was spontaneous answer. His name was number one. So I think um, even though he's tried to announce that he's like out of politics, I think that he's a name that people would be open to seeing in. So yeah, this is kind of the tension with frustration as people say, like, if you were in politics before, stay out. But then the names that they recognize are people that they want to lead the country country forward. Yeah, so Bobana Vatimbayev, yeah, Jay Mbekov, and Jay Mbekov is a worthwhile name, both for Sorombay Jay Mbekov, who, if you're reading, I don't know, on Kyrgyz Twitter is sometimes called Shariman, because when he met Putin, Putin messed up his name in patronymic and called him Shariman Sharipovich, but his real name is Sodombai. and his brother Aselbek um, is the head of Bidindik party, um, which is one of the um, four that secured seats in this last election. So yeah, Jay Mbekov is currently president and is... Hanging on for dear life. I don't think he's super well liked. Definitely not in Bishkek. I feel even at protests in the last two years, a common refrain of these protests has been, so okay, Kitsin, like leave. We don't want you anymore. Get out. So I don't think he's super well liked. But yeah, what, what his next moves are to try to if he tries to stay in power or not it is unclear to me. That within the first few days of the protests, he announced that he was willing to resign. And then I think when he saw that Japadov was really gunning for being acting president, I kind of rolled that back. It was like, no, 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 I don't need to resign for the sake of stability. I'll stay in. But I think, yeah, and to, for for someone who's not deeply tied into Kyrgyz politics, knowing the name Jay Bekov is the president, Jopadov is currently prime minister. Atambayev, former president in prison, but is still influential, and Babanov, former presidential candidate, currently tangential to politics, but probably will play a role. And yeah, knowing the name Matrayimov will be helpful in just that that's the criminal family that has its hands in Kyrgyzstan's politics, and I think until very recently was playing marionette with it, but that's the name that people associate with criminal groups running the government and demanding them to leave.
0: So I'm feeling like after that explanation, maybe the solar system wasn't the right analogy and Game of Thrones might have been perhaps more apt. I'm a little hesitant to ask just because I feel this might make this even more complicated and even harder to understand. but. Do these centers of gravity, Atom Bayev, Dan Bekov, do they actually have meaningful policy disagreements or their forces like arguing, let's just say hypothetically more pro-Russia, more pro-China, or is this more kind of personalized politics competing for influence, but generally agree on things?
1: Yeah, it's really largely personal politics that even parties that are competing, like parties are more vehicles for individual politicians gunning for influence, gunning for leverage economically, politically, like parties do not really have coherent ideological preferences or policy platforms. I don't think people are really voting for ideas or voting for Russia or voting for China, like they're voting for people's names that they recognize and parties that campaigned in their region yeah so in terms of yeah actual politics i don't know that there's really a lot of governance happening um, (laughs) in Parliament. yeah, really, this just seems like trying to create a stable government that will get them through the next round. I think that that there are smaller opposition parties that have started to clarify platforms and really coherent messaging on policy. So the Reforma Party is one that didn't do super well in elections, but had a a solid platform. Its name means reform, so they're reform-oriented. But also the Atta Party in government, I think, is an example of a party that is thinking more about policy than just trying to play this personal politics game.
0: So last big question, but one of the things in doing some reading about the situation that's come up is Kyrgyzstan's north-south divide, which from the cursory reading I did led to fairly tragic consequences in 2010. I believe it's the Uzbek population in the south of the country. Massive uh, ethnic violence occurred. I think it was several thousand people were killed. Just really horrible situation. I've read both that that is playing into the current political situation. And at the same time, it's also not doing that. So for, again, myself and for listeners, what do we need to understand about that geographic divide? And is it playing in here?
1: So after the there was a revolution in 2010 and a few months after the revolution, then there was it it basically it started as a fight between young guys in front of a casino and escalated into 400 dead. Thousands injured, tens of thousands displaced from their homes, with like the line of violence happening from Osh, Kyrgyzstan's southern capital, all the way up through Jalalabad Oblast to even like tiny villages, maybe eight nine hours north of Osh along the Kyrgyz Uzbek border. The, yeah, these tensions between Kyrgyzstan's more like ethno-nationalist side and ethnic Uzbeks in the south have always been present, and I think haven't gone away. But the the tension that existed in 2010, at least. Um, in the years that I lived in in the south are now just a bit more massed like I think that the suppression is still there the fear is still there from ethnic Uzbeks in Osh and Jalalabad, but I don't think that people were expecting a repeat of 2010. But yeah, and I think like that you're reading accounts that say both that this North South divide is super relevant and also that it's not relevant at all. That I'm of the mind that both of those things are true. So, one, I think trying to describe any of the fight, this personal political fighting as North South is a bit misguided. Like, I think the parties that crawled their way to the top and used whatever means necessary to get the votes to cross the threshold. We're doing that both in the North and in the South. Like, I don't think it's worth making a huge deal that Jay and Bekov is from Osh and Matraimov is from the South, but Atambayev and Bobanov are from the North. Like, I don't think like putting it in those terms is oversimplified. But at the same time, I mean, people remember the Osh events people do not want them to happen again. And I think that that's kind of where in protests that were happening last week, both in Bishkek and in Osh, that the people who were had shown up were yelling things like, we need peace, we need harmony, do not let this divide us, don't let regionalism, like Trump all. Um, so I think the, the determination of average people to be above this divide and recognize that politicians can press that button and I think like trigger like use this cleavage for their own political ends people know that that's a trick and they're not going to fall for it but definitely the the few days after after the elections were really tense um friends and colleagues in Jalalabad and Osh of mine like expressed fear and like nervousness about something getting out of control I think Osh is the the man who was mayor of Osh at the time of the pogroms return from exile for all of one day to open arms like people were really excited to have him back there was a huge rally to welcome him he left kind of without much fanfare but I think his return signaled this weird thing of like what is it that southern Oblasts want what do they want from their political leadership was a confusing day, but he, yeah, this is an example of like why the, the solar system uh analogy maybe isn't super apt because he, or I guess it's like, maybe like a comment, like this guy, Melis <laughs> Muzikatov, like flew in, was there and then like left. So it's already gone and not representing a really meaningful center of gravity to use your phrase. But yeah, I think it's impossible to ignore that the North South cleavage exists and is like a meaning, it, Locally, is like a meaningful divide, but I really don't think that it's like a powerful explanation for why the unrest of the last two weeks has happened or even what we should expect from this power struggle for between the prime minister, speaker and president in the weeks moving forward.
0: But thing to underline number three is that the average folks on the street have been playing a really, I would say, constructive role, fair to say. I saw a picture they were at the rallies, you know, like giving out tea and you know making sure order was kept. So admirable job from them. I think that takes us to the end here of Crisis One. Coming up next is Crisis Two. We'll uh, move over to the South Caucasus. But Colleen, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That concludes part one of this special feature, and thanks again to Colleen for joining. Up next is Nagorno-Karabakh, and joining us to shed some light on what's happening there is Jeff Mankoff, an expert in all things Eurasia. We go a ways back, believe it or not, to my first internship in the field. But before we start talking about the conflict's history, what's happened, why it's happening, and how it may have evolved, I really need to stress that we're not taking a side here. This is a very sensitive issue for understandable reasons, and the only thing we truly want is a speedy resolution and everyone to come home safe. So with that said, let's dive in. Jeff, great to have you on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So to kick things off, uh, could you quickly introduce yourself to the audience?
2: Sure. My name is Jeff Mankoff. I'm a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at National Defense University, which means that everything I say is my own view and should not be taken to represent the policy of National Defense University,
0: the Department of Defense
2: of the United States government.
0: Duly noted. So we have a pretty, uh, I was going to say interesting, but I think unfortunate is probably the better word here, situation in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, technically in Azerbaijan, but essentially what we have is an interstate war, or in plainer English, a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So this is the second crisis in our uh, two-part double feature here. So to lay the groundwork here, just so there's a clear narrative, if you could quickly kind of walk through... What has happened in the last month or so in the region? How did this mm-hmm. conflagration come to be? So the
2: fighting broke out at the end of September, and both sides accused the other of firing the first shot. It seems pretty clear that this is an Azerbaijani uh, military offensive, whether it was provoked by actions on the Armenian side or, or the Karabakh side or not. It comes after a period of rising tensions, including some significant clashes in July. So there has been a constant spiral of escalation that has really been in place really since 2016 when the last major Outbreak of violence took place. I think there are internal political factors in both Baku and Yerevan that are pushing in this direction. And I think the role of uh, regional players, particularly Turkey, is important in setting the wheels of this conflict in motion
0: as well. So we'll get to the regional players, I guess, a little ways down the road. But I think so we know what's happening. We know that this is probably the most serious conflict in the region, maybe since the Georgia War. I mean, this is pretty full scale at this point. We know why it's happening, or we'll at least explore that further. Um, But I guess what's particularly interesting to me is why now? As you mentioned, there's been skirmishes since 2016. So, you know, what has caused it to to escalate to this degree at this time?
2: Yeah, I I don't think there's a clear answer um, right now. You know, again, I think the internal dynamics in both countries are such that the push for war greater than it would have been, say, a year ago, that has to do on the Azerbaijani side with economic difficulties, with growing protests against uh, the Aliyev government, and with the role that encouragement from, from Turkey is playing. You know, On the Armenian side, too, I think there's been, since the, the so-called Velvet Revolution in 2018... There's been, uh, despite some early hints that the the Pashinyan government was open to um, more of a negotiated solution, and there's been some pretty harsh rhetoric, including um, Pashinyan saying at one point that Karabakh is Armenia and that's it, which I think communicated a message that there wasn't really room for negotiation and that the only recourse that the Azerbaijani side would have in their view was to resort to force. Meanwhile, the balance of power on the ground has shifted. In the last several years, the Azerbaijani military's capabilities have improved substantially as they have spent money earned from the sale of oil and gas, upgrading the military and buying new capabilities from not only Russia, which has long been the the main arms supplier to both sides in the conflict, but also uh, from Turkey, from Israel. And that shift in the balance of power, anybody who's studied international relations and, and understands uh, the notion of the security dilemma, I think would, would recognize the, the concern on both sides about how this potential shift could create a situation in the future that was more disbalanced than, than is the case now, and also created a belief in Baku that with the balance having shifted, that now they're in a more advantageous position than they were a few years ago.
0: So speaking of advantageous position, and, you know, as we, we hope this conflict ends soon, just talking about, like, what has actually happened during the conflicts, not to necessarily get into, you know, the military technologies at play. From what I've read, and just following this so far, it, it looks like Azerbaijan has made some modest, if not strategic games, or gains, rather. So I guess, you know, before we get that, let's take a step back, because I think before we talk about... What's actually happened in the conflict? Understanding the background and kind of what Nagorno-Karabakh is as an entity is probably the, the right call first. Let's go back in time a little bit to the the fall of the Soviet Union. Kind of you know, what led to this conflict in the first place? Karabakh's interesting, unclear position
1: mm-hmm.
0: within in quotations don't want to step on a you know a mine there within Azerbaijan.
2: Nagorno-Karabakh, or I should say, the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Old Oblast, was a majority Armenian entity within the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. Now, how it ended up there is a whole other story that we have to go back to World War One and the, the Russian Civil War and the Turkish War of Independence to, to tease out. And I don't think we want to quite go down that rabbit hole. But needless to say, as in many other of the Soviet republics, there was this entity where the majority of the population was of a different ethnic, linguistic, religious background, than the republics surrounding it. You know, you had similar, a similar situation in Georgia with with South Ossetia and Abkhazia after 1954 in Ukraine with Crimea. So there was this Soviet legacy of building these kind of concentric circles of union republics, the 15 that became independent when the Soviet Union collapsed. Within some of which there were these smaller autonomous oblasts, autonomous okrugs, etc., that had uh, a different population majority, and that was the case with the NKAO, the nagorno karabakh Autonomous Oblast in Azerbaijan. Now, the majority Armenian population in the NKAO had mobilized or had called on several occasions during the latter decades of the Soviet Union for jurisdiction over the NKAO to be transferred from Azerbaijan to Armenia. Those protests never got anywhere. In the last years of the Soviet Union, during the era of Perestroika and Glasnost, when there was more scope for grassroots mobilization, there was a much bigger coming together of the ethnic Armenian majority in the NKAO making these demands. And as a result, you had episodes of communal violence on both sides breaking out in the last years of the Soviet Union. Civilians being targeted, pogroms, etc. And the Soviet government in the late 1980s was incapable of figuring out what to do about this problem. It didn't really have the the resources or the capabilities to come up with a viable political solution. And then fast forward a couple of years, and the Soviet Union falls apart, means that Armenia and Azerbaijan are now independent countries. And for the Armenian majority in Karabakh, in some ways, this situation looks even worse, because instead of being within the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic, which is itself part of the larger multinational, multi-ethnic USSR, now uh, the NKAO is, or what was the NKAO is now an Armenian majority district within an aspiring Azerbaijani nation state. And the government of Azerbaijan in the early 1990s had a very nationalist outlook. And the position of the Armenians who were a majority in, Nagorno-Karabakh, but a minority in Azerbaijan as a whole, appeared precarious. And so you had mobilization and eventually war that broke out in Karabakh that involved the forces of both the now independent states of Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Russia. Even though the Soviet Union was gone and these were now independent states, Russia was still the dominant regional power, Uh, it still had troops deployed in the region who largely sided with the Armenians for a variety of reasons. And as a result, when a ceasefire was signed um, in May 1994, it left the old NKAO, or the vast majority of it at least, under the control of local Armenian separatists who wanted a separate status, who did not want to be part of, of Azerbaijan anymore. but. At the same time, during the course of the fighting before May 1994, ethnic Armenian forces also took over a number of surrounding districts, seven of them, some of which connect the old Soviet NKAO to the state of Armenia, the Republic of Armenia, some of which don't, but border the old NKAO, but where the population at the time was majority Azeri. Meanwhile, small bits of the old Soviet NKAO remained within Azerbaijan. So you have this very complicated map of lines on the ground that's effectively frozen by the 1994 ceasefire. Now, what this means is that you have two contending principles at odds with one another. One, which is the position that the Azerbaijani side relies on, is territorial integrity. That is that states have a right to maintain full sovereignty within their recognized international borders. And since the Soviet era borders, the 15 republics were accepted when the Soviet Union collapsed, Azerbaijan claims and has UN resolutions that it leans on for support to say that nagorno Karabakh is legitimately part of Azerbaijan's territory. On the other side, you have the principle of self-determination, which the Armenians, both in Karabakh and in Armenia, Rely on to say that, you know, going back to Woodrow Wilson and the 14 points, that communities have a right to determine for themselves what their fate is. And since the majority of the people living in Karabakh were. Armenian and the Armenian share of the population has even increased as a result of the war and the outflow of ethnic Azeris, the Armenian claim is that they should have the right to determine their future for themselves. And these two principles are in a lot of ways incompatible. Nagorno-Karabakh is not the only place in the world where they're at odds. You know, Kosovo is another example, as is Georgia with the, the separatist conflicts in, in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So this is a it's a difficult situation made worse by the fact that you had this fairly vicious war in the late 80s. In early 90s that led to about 30,000 deaths, mass displacement. The numbers usually cited about 100,000 people uh, were displaced by the fighting. You know, many civilians killed, expelled, and have not been resettled since. But the upshot on the ground was that the war ended with what amounted to an Armenian victory, because Armenian forces controlled both the vast majority of the old Soviet NKAO, as well as these seven districts surrounding it that were majority Azeri and that were even the Armenian government recognized as being Azeri uh,
0: or Azerbaijani I should say. But so bringing it back to today it looks like Azerbaijan has made gains in retaking some of these districts outside of Nagorno-Karabakh that had formerly been administered by Armenia or at least occupied again don't want to use any too charged language here as far as Azerbaijan's aim here in, in this offensive, I think is, is is fair to say, is it essentially making the, the situation on the ground correspond more with the strategic balance, now that they have more power, mm-hmm. a stronger army? Are they trying to restore complete territorial integrity and regain control of Nagorno-Karabakh? Is this more, you know, given the economic situation in COVID, is this more what I guess uh, leadership might have hoped to be a short, you know, quick victorious war? What's the aim Uh, here?
2: Well, yeah, I think leaders who launch wars always hope that it will be short and victorious. And more often than not, they're disappointed in that expectation. You know, look, I think if the Azerbaijani leadership thought that it could completely expel Armenian forces from the seven districts and from Karabakh, they would consider that they would happily do it. I think they're realistic enough to understand that that is not likely, not impossible, but not likely. And certainly that doing that would be uh, would have very grave humanitarian consequences. And that is something we can talk about. But yeah, so far, you know, what we've seen is there have been some limited territorial gains by the Azerbaijani side, particularly two of the districts that are south of Nagorno-Karabakh proper and to a lesser degree in the east and north. A handful of villages, most of which are effectively unoccupied or uninhabited, that have have changed hands. There's also been shelling, artillery attacks uh, into Nagorno-Karabakh proper. Stepanakert, which is the the capital of Nagorno-Karabakh, has come under pretty sustained shelling, including the use of cluster munitions. And on the other side, the Armenian forces have carried out artillery attacks against Ganja, which is the the second largest city in Azerbaijan. And again, in both of these places, you know, it's civilians who are, are bearing the brunt of the of the suffering. There's also been, of course, you know, fighting between the two militaries, and the casualty figures are are somewhat unreliable, but you know, are certainly in the hundreds. So for the Azerbaijanis, the issue to a significant degree is that the ceasefire has been in place since 1994. And despite everything that's happened since, including the improved, including the growing disparity between the economic situation in the two countries, the growth of Azerbaijan's military power, and the peace process, which has been in place for most of that time, very little has changed. That 25 years on, Azerbaijan hasn't made any appreciable progress towards recovering what it considers to be its legitimate territories, either Nagorno-Karabakh proper or the, the surrounding territories. And with the harder line that the, the current Armenian government has taken current of territories, I think the belief in Baku was that a military solution or a solution that involved at least some use of military power was the only path that remained open towards securing what they consider the, their territorial integrity.
0: Makes sense. So I guess flipping to the other side here. So we have Armenia proper, the Republic of Armenia, uh-huh. We have Nagorno Karabakh, the self-declared enclave. To what extent is the the line between them blurred? I know Armenia has, you know, been hesitant to formally, you know, annex or declare yeah. Nagorno Karabakh part of Armenia. I know Armenia provides a ton of economic and military support. Is there a line between them, or is it really is it really the same entity?
2: No, there is a line, but it's complicated. So. One of the ways in which it's complicated is that before 2018, before the Velvet Revolution, the political leadership in Yerevan was mostly of karabakh background. So there was a kind of fusion of of the the politics in the two countries, which meant that Yerevan was seen as, as sort of speaking for Stepanakert. Pashinyan, uh, in his inner circle, are not Karabaki, and so that has made the, the situation a little more complicated in some ways, because on the one hand, I think there's a sense in which they feel the need to be more Catholic than the Pope, if you will, on this issue, to avoid kind of being pressured from the nationalist right for not being tough enough on the on the Karabakh issue. But it also means that their perspective and that of the karabakhis isn't necessarily the same you know i, I saw an interesting study the other day um, by some scholars who had done fieldwork in these places and the views of ordinary people in armenia and in nagorno karabakh about you know whether they want whether they favored karabakh independence integration with armenia you know, good relations with Russia, good relations with the West, Like there is a, a significant difference. You know, they are separate in that sense. And I think, you know, for Yerevan, for the Armenian government, recognition of Karabaki independence, or proclaiming the formal annexation of Karabakh would be seen as a very provocative step by Azerbaijan, by uh, other countries in the region, and it would, I think, hurt the international support that Armenia hopes to have to ultimately come to some sort of political resolution that allows it to keep Nagorno-Karabakh. They have not taken the step of formally recognizing Karabakh's independence, which would be probably rejected by most of the, the international community. But again, Pashinyan said, Karabakh is Armenia and that's all there is to it. So at least on the rhetorical level, there has been more of a, a, a move towards something like that. During the course of the, of the current fighting, there have been voices in Armenia who have threatened to recognize Karabakh independence should, you know, the Azerbaijani offensive continue, should Azerbaijani forces move into Karabakh proper, etc. So that idea is not entirely off the table, but so far it's a, a Rubicon that Yerevan has, has not been willing to cross.
0: Last question here, zooming out a bit on the map. Uh, one of the other interesting things about this conflict has been the role of outside regional powers. So on one hand, as you've alluded to multiple times so far, Turkey has played, I think safe to say, an unusually active role mm-hmm. uh, in, in the conflict as far as supporting Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, you have Russia, the former you know regional hegemonic power with all mm-hmm. calling all the shots in the region and literally has a troop stationed in Armenia, um, mm-hmm. as well as a mutual defense pact with Armenia, the Republic one, not Nagorno-Karabakh, has played, by the sound of it, a fairly passive role, hasn't yeah. really gotten too involved, which is, to me, both interesting, but also a little surprising. So mm-hmm. what's explains, as, as you know, far as you can piece together, A, why Turkey has decided yeah. to play this more active role, and then on the flip side, why mm-hmm. has Russia been so passive?
2: I mean, these are both big questions we could probably talk about for a long time. I guess let me start with Turkey. There's a very close relationship between Turkey and Azerbaijan, and there has been for some time. Turkey supported Azerbaijan during the initial conflict in the 1990s and in fact closed its border with Armenia, imposed an embargo on trade with Armenia that still remains in place. And it was actually first the Azerbaijani president, the time Haider Aliyev, who used the phrase that Turks and Azeris are one nation in two states. But now that's a, a term that you hear from a lot of, of Turkish officials and commentators. Um, president Erdogan has has said that on, on multiple occasions. So there's this sense of of being tied. Tied together by a common identity and a, a common fate but that's been true throughout this conflict i think what has shifted in the last couple of years is really the one turkish domestic politics and two the international context so in terms of turkish domestic politics you know the economy is struggling Erdogan's popularity has always been somewhat tenuous. And I think with the, the local elections last year, where the opposition won control of the major cities, Istanbul and Ankara, fed concerns about the staying power of the AK Party government that, that Erdogan had. And so, you know, much like saw Vladimir Putin do Ukraine several years ago, this sort of invocation of, you know, what you might call post-imperial themes as a legitimating strategy has become more prominent more recently. And we've seen a much more assertive Turkish stance on the conflict in Libya in the eastern Mediterranean, where there's a, a now ongoing con- confrontation with Greece over territorial issues, but also with France and now in the South Caucasus. And I I think a lot of this has to do with efforts to gin up public support for the AK party with Erdogan hoping to kind of stay around, stay in power until 2023, which is is the centennial of the, the foundation of the Turkish Republic. The international context has changed too, because Turkey's relationship with the West has been going through a rather difficult period since at least 2014-2015 when there was the dust-up over U.S. in particular support for the People's Protection Units, the the YPG in northern Syria, which Turkey regards, not incorrectly, as an offshoot of the PKK, which is the the Kurdish separatist movement that's been waging an insurgency against the Turkish state since the mid-1980s. And then the, the coup attempt, the the Turkish military launched against Erdogan in uh, 2016 when Erdogan and the and his supporters perceived that the United States was at best ambivalent about the coup and was kind of waiting to see what was going to happen before really taking a stand. And so as that relationship has worsened, as prospects for Turkey's EU accession have worsened, we've seen Turkey adopt more of a... Perspective of itself as, a, as an aspiring regional power rather than a bulwark of the West. And that has meant, you know, playing a more expansive role in these regional conflicts, deepening ties with countries and, and regions that are linked to Turkey by ties of, of history and culture and, and religion and the like. There's a, a prehistory to all of this, but I think it, it's really accelerated in the last four or five years. And in some ways, that has brought Turkey face to face with Russia because they have common neighborhood in a lot of places. And particularly because Russia has become more of an expeditionary power. So, you know, now Turkish and Russian forces are rubbing up against each other in Syria and in Libya and in now the South Caucasus. And I think in some way all of these conflicts are linked in the sense that what happens in one affects the ability of both Turkey and Russia to shape developments in the other. So Turkey's intervention in Libya was partly about gaining leverage in Syria. And I think you could make a similar argument about Turkey's involvement in the South Caucasus, hoping to use to um, in its negotiations with Russia about the dispensation of these other conflicts. At the end of the day, I think Turkey has more at stake, certainly in Syria, than it does in in the South Caucasus, and its position in Syria has been continually eroded by regime and and Russian advances. And so this effort to establish itself as a player in the South Caucasus, I don't think can be understood independently of all of the other theaters where Russia and Turkey are, are As for Russia, and why it's been comparatively passive, I think there's a couple of explanations. I mean, one, as you rightly pointed out, the security guarantee that Russia has provided to Armenia in the context of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, covers Armenian territory. And because Nagorno-Karabakh has not been recognized as Armenian territory, Russia has made very clear that security guarantee from the CSTO doesn't apply to Nagorno-Karabakh or the, the occupied regions surrounding it, which is another reason, to get back to your question of why Armenia hasn't recognized Karabakh's independence, because then it would be seen as an attempt to force Russia's hand in a way that I don't think Russia would appreciate. So the Russians have made very clear that you know if this conflict stays out of internationally recognized Armenian territory, the security guarantee under the, the CSTO doesn't apply. Beyond that, you know Turkey entered this conflict very much in support of the Azerbaijani side. Russia's role is more ambiguous because even though it is an ally of Armenia through the CSTO, it has troops stationed in Armenia, it has a significant economic stake in Armenia over the last several years, Russia's relationship with Azerbaijan has improved as well. And Russia has sold weapons to Azerbaijan. It has invested in Azerbaijan. It has provided political support for Azerbaijan at a time when the West was becoming increasingly disgusted with Aliyev's government. And Russia, as one of the co-chairs of the OSCE Minsk Group and in previous instances of conflict, the most influential of those co-chairs, I think is trying to maintain its ability to act as a power broker, a mediator in this conflict, which means that it's trying to avoid fully coming down on one side or another. It's not eager to spoil its relationship with Azerbaijan at this point. At the same time, There's no love lost between Moscow and Pashinyan, who after all came to power on the back of a popular uprising that that Moscow did not support. And whose statements about Karabakh have been less than helpful from Moscow's perspective. And so, to some degree, I think Russia is interested in not rushing in to bail Pashinyan out of a problem that, to some degree, it regards him as having caused for himself. Now, again, if uh, Azerbaijani advance goes far, if it goes into Karabakh proper, much less into undisputed Armenian territory, then Russia will have a more difficult decision to make. But certainly, you know, for now. I think it's not averse to the idea of seeing Pashinyan take a beating that cuts him down to size and, and perhaps makes him a little bit more tractable or ultimately see him being replaced by somebody who is more tractable. And then there's also, of course, all of the other things that are going on the COVID pandemic, Western sanctions, Russia's own constitutional slash succession issue, and the Russo-Turkish relation, which, you know, again, isn't confined to the South Caucasus but encompasses all these other theaters as well. And dealing with all of these things at once is is a lot to ask of Russia. And, you know, I think also, at the end of the day, Russia can bang heads together. And certainly, it has been the most effective mediator between Armenia and Azerbaijan in previous episodes of violence in 2016, earlier in 2020. um, And even now, the ceasefire that was not really implemented was, was negotiated following Putin's conversations with Aliyev and Pashinyan But this is ultimately a conflict that's being driven by the protagonists, which is to say Baku and Yerevan, which is different from many of the other not exactly frozen conflicts in the former Soviet Union, where Russia is itself one of the protagonists. So I think sometimes there's a tendency to overestimate Russia's ability to, to influence or to shape facts on the ground in, in this particular conflict. So that's even more true now because of the, the other challenges that Russia's facing and because of, of Turkey's involvement.
0: Makes sense and reflect just how complicated the regional politics are in this case. The, the takeaway from the Kyrgyzstan situation, it was that it is moving really, really fast. And the takeaway here is that the South Caucasus and I guess Caucasus as a whole are really complicated. Anyway, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. So there you have it. Part two. Thanks again to both of our guests, Colleen and Jeff, for joining. And be sure to follow BMB Russia and Eurasia at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. The Bear Market Brief podcast and The Brief are a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. Thank you for joining and stay tuned for future episodes.